Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. This week on our scintillating show, we will be discussing a literary controversy the three of us have been following with great interest. Joining me is the professor, Tom Lutz. The professor. Hello, <laughs> Hello Tom. And, uh... and writer, critic, Galabout Town, Oscar Hammerstein, obsessive Hitler loather, Laurie Weiner. Or Marianne. Or Ginger. We've um, all been a little bit obsessed with this issue. I don't know what to call it. Gone with the Wingate, Margaret Mitchell Gate. Vanessa Place Gate, perhaps. Vanessa Place Gate. Uh, Vanessa Place, a poet, a very conceptual artist, has uh, started an art project that has caused quite a lot of condemnation around town. She is tweeting the entire text of Gone with the Wind, which includes all of the uh, racist text, the dialogue. There's uh, a lot of dialogue that we would today consider racist. When the book was published, probably was also considered racist, but by a much smaller ratio of the population. And, um, yes, go ahead. And it has a mammy avatar. It's from a sheet music cover. It's from a sheet music cover. So the question is, is Vanessa Place racist in pioneering this project? Is she exposing racism? People are so divided and they're finding very difficult to find a way to even talk about it. Well, in fact, people have found lots of ways to talk about it. And uh, we've been following this story in part because two major West Coast literary events have been impacted by it. The AWP, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, which is the major annual conference attended by creative writing professors, by MFA students, by writers, uh, is being held here in Los Angeles. And Vanessa Place was on the program committee. A number of people and groups worked hard to get her removed from that committee, uh, which she then was. And then the Berkeley Poetry Conference, where Place was also on the program, received a raft of protests and ended up eventually canceling the entire conference, though they have very recently said that they are going to regroup and try again later. And what I think fascinates us is that the the group that is involved in this, the normally progressive literary community, has uh, half of them seem to have rallied around censoring an artist and uh, maintaining she does not have the right because she's white to take this this stance in uh, in service of her project. Well, I think most uh, of the people who are objecting to it would would not put it that way, and we'll let them speak for themselves. But let's start by asking Vanessa to explain what the project was. I started the project in 2009, and when I first started the project, it was a very limited experiment with Twitter in particular, with social media, but specifically with Twitter. And the idea was, well, what would happen if I tweeted all of a novel, but specifically all of a novel that, to my mind, is essentially one of its main properties is its racism. Right. And if I did this, if I continuously violated the copyright of this book, would the estate at some point want to assert its property rights in the text, which then might open it up to a conversation about the legitimacy of their claim to own own the material? Ah, interesting. Okay. And the copyright angle was uh, was a major part of the project for you? 
That was the idea, was that I, could I use social media to trigger the copyright violation? What happens if I simply tweet an entire book? I don't change anything. I'm breaking it up into its little 140-character chunks, but I'm not changing anything at all. But I am appending images that highlight the racism in the text, which is, I think, the thing that makes distinguishes it from being a fan page and a critique. And that's what people were upset about, were the images. Right, which is then really interesting in the sense of what happened between, say, 2009 and 2015 is that the way we maybe engage with social media, it didn't change, but it's gotten a little bit more solidified. The images went viral in the sense of people were just looking at these images, saying they're racist images, therefore it's a racist project and should be condemned. So were you surprised by the reaction? I don't know if surprise is exactly right. I think that what the project has done is really opened up a couple of interesting areas in terms of the left's need, specifically the white left's need, to preserve a kind of integrity for themselves. And the integrity being primarily the idea which I find somewhat ethically problematic, that white people shouldn't talk about race, except for to, that shouldn't be, shouldn't talk about race in terms of articulating their own, their own race position. For some people, the focus on Place's work is, um, you'll pardon the pun, misplaced. Matthew Shinoda is an award-winning poet, a longtime Los Angeles resident, former Cal Arts faculty member and is now on the faculty at Columbia College Chicago. He's lectured widely on ethnic studies and creative writing, and he's the founding editor of the African Poetry Book Series. He's originally from Egypt. Uh, and he's held administrative positions dealing with issues of diversity. And he prepared some remarks for us, including this. I'll begin by saying I think in many ways it seems unfortunate that a single individual is being granted this much attention. I think giving Vanessa Place that level of power seems a bit absurd to me, especially that in my estimation her Gone with the Wind project is not only rife with an almost juvenile sense of history, race, and systemic racism, but ultimately the project seems to me quite shallow. Um, it is essentially a kind of weak remixing or a veiled duplication at best of an overly unambitious and staid conversation. The work both conceptually, intellectually, and, and artistically brings nothing new to the conversation on race and literature, and therefore it merits, in my opinion, fairly little response. Her project seems to me to have no real understanding of the immense history of critical work that's been done on these issues, and it smacks of that kind of privilege and positionality that says, I thought of this, therefore it must be interesting. We also spoke to Mary Nana Amadankwa. She was a native of Ghana. She's an author, editor, freelance journalist, and her memoir is called Willow Weep for Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression. Dankwa was one of those who signed the petition to remove place from the committee, uh, the AWP committee. And at first, uh, for reasons similar to Shinoda's, she wasn't sure she wanted to talk about it. And the reason why I did agree to speak was because I wanted to say why I didn't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say it using the words of Toni Morrison, which have been extremely instructional for me as an artist of color who constantly finds herself having to engage in these types of conversations. And it says, 
The function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Someone says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of that is necessary. There will always be one more thing. The piece, I, I think you know, was originally conceived as an attempt to force a copyright suit to make the Mitchell estate claim that they owned all of that racism. If we want to talk about copyright infringement, I mean, when I read that, that's when I was like, what? It was like something from outer space, literally, because I thought, okay, how is she challenging white supremacy by a copyright infringement of this particular book? You know what I'm saying? What does that, what does that do in terms of the real battle? What does that do? Oh, and by yeah. putting that image out there, an image that, look, even Aunt, even, even Aunt Jemima on the pancake box, they gave her a perm and they like took the little head wrap and made it cute, you know, mm -hmm. a few years ago. I'm saying like, we have moved on. So it's, this is like driving Miss Daisy for me. You're going to go back and put these old hurtful images up there and then claim that you want someone to say, we own this. And then we're, this is a battle that we're not there. Mm -hmm. We're not there. They're killing black people in the streets. Black lives matter. We're there. Absolutely. And so this to me is like, this is a waste of time. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7. For many years, I taught a course on the 1920s at many texts and artists from the Harlem Renaissance, uh, along with a bunch of canonical texts, music, art. And as part of that course, I showed students a series of sheet music covers, including the covers of what were known at the time as coon songs. They had stupendously racist art. And one year I noticed a student, an African-American woman, who was just viscerally, profoundly affected by the images. She was shading her eyes. She was visibly upset. The point I was making was that this sheet music was primarily bought by African-Americans and that it was functioning, as in many other debates within African-American culture at the time, in relation to social stratification. These images, the black bourgeoisie was saying to itself, are not us. But for this young woman, they were just like, it was like I was stabbing her in the heart and I felt horrible. I pulled the image down and went on talking without it. I never am trying to exculpate myself. I'm actually interested in the inculpation. And the fact is, is that, look, if you see these images as a non-African-American American, mm -hmm. I think that one of the things one might feel is a visceral reaction of shame. Mm -hmm. That these are the images that we authored. 
that these are the images that my people put out in the world and put on to other people. And so that the, the conversation isn't, to my mind, isn't, oh, only people of color have the responsibility to discuss race or to discuss historical and structural racism. It's all of, we're, we are all race. We all are part of these discursive structures. I think your comparison is deeply flawed. I posed the same question to Mary Nana Dankwa. Let me just first say, from what I understand of your class, mm -hmm. you were not just walking in and putting images on the blackboard and walking out. That okay. is true. That's the first thing. People were reading literature. They had context. They had a place. They had a time. And they also had a certain context. So you were looking at history. And history is something that has happened, and you've created this entire context so people know how it happened, when it happened, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To go on somebody's Twitter page... It's, it was very provocative. There is no context. These things are disembodied. As was the case in another infamous conceptual art project by Kenneth Goldsmith called Michael Brown's Body, which has been referenced, uh, as you know, many times in this conversation. The reading of Michael Brown's autopsy mm -hmm. ended on a climax of details of his penis, which I think... Oh, really? It, oh, yes, absolutely. And I, I just find that to be so gross, given the history... Yeah. Given the history, I find that to of be course. so just disgusting. What kind of conversation did you have with the AWP about this? They contacted me, asked me to resign because of the disruption to the conference programming, the planning that needed to go on for the conference. I told them that I was not going to resign, that if they were going to uh, essentially recuse me or uh, fire you. Otherwise, yeah, you know, fire me or something. They would be doing so on the basis of my poetry practice. And I heard from them about five minutes later saying that I was no longer on the subcommittee. And that was the extent of that conversation. A few days later, the protest against place being on the program at the Berkeley Poetry Conference, uh, as I said, led to the cancellation of the entire conference. Quite a few people, including the organizers of the conference, noticed the, uh, well, let's, uh, let's call it irony, that the conference was celebrating the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the free speech movement. But Matthew Shinoda is one of many people who see an important distinction uh, between the AWP issue and the poetry conference. I think we must disaggregate the push to remove Vanessa Place from the AWP selection committee from the situation with the Berkeley Poetry Conference. In the case of AWP, which I supported, I think it's reckless and openly inequitable to have someone who very clearly misses the myriad nuances of racial discourses and the historicity of both language and imagery around issues of race in a position to judge the merit of other writers' creative, intellectual, and academic presentations. I simply don't see her fit to make such selections. But in the case of the Berkeley Poetry Conference, I see no reason not to have the discussion. As I've stated many times before, free speech means that people have the right to say what they want. 
It also means that others have the right to respond and to not only disagree, but to protest them. So this is, from my estimation, a core tenet of the cultural work around justice. It comes with the territory. So justice ultimately then causes damage to injustice. And many of us see places work as enacting injustice. So a response to it then becomes an act of working towards justice. Um, working towards a sense of truth. And I think for many of us, the subjugation and discourse of racialization used against people of color is not only deeply personal, but it's part of a larger moral and cultural framework that we operate from. So in that sense, Place must be aware that people respond negatively to her project and as such should be willing to engage that response. So there, there's certainly a place for a conversation here and one that ultimately must depart, I think, from talking specifically or only about Vanessa Place's work and I think needs to move back into a space of talking about dynamic art that engages these issues in a far more nuanced and critical way than her current project does. However, my understanding is that the committee organizing the Berkeley Poetry Conference didn't feel that a conversation on that level could happen um, as the conference is currently structured and as such, I believe, canceled that conference as a result of that. And to my understanding, just yesterday called for a new conference that would address these issues more directly and forthrightly. And in that sense, I support the re-envisioning of the Berkeley Poetry Conference in an attempt to address these very real and serious issues in a more critical manner. And I hope that the new conference will take this on and, and move the conversation well beyond, I think, um, the situation with Vanessa Place and into a kind of more central space of talking about what is still a very long and deep and troubled binary history of, of race in American literature. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books, here on listener-supported KPFK 90.7 FM, don't touch that dial. How does this affect you moving forward? Because the funny thing about doing a provocation these days is you're never sure who you're going to provoke. And having provoked people who presumably, uh, the, the citizens of the world in which you live, the artists, the people, the, you know, the progressive community, how does this affect you moving forward in terms of your own work? Well, I think that part of it is I've always maintained, uh, my mantra has always been never apologize, never explain. You know, the, when people are following my Gone with the Wind feed, which people, 1,200 people followed it for years, they're there voluntarily. If they find the material offensive, then they can think about that. But as the material gets away from me, then I start to see that not apologize. I'm not apologizing for the work, but maybe the apology is that I have, when I'm working with this kind of material, another obligation to at least have the, the wall text, to at least let people know what the parameters of the work are. Though maybe that will become unnecessary too when people start to see that social medium is an artistic media 
I just want to bring up one of your prior uh, projects, which I enjoyed and um, it came up upon me. It kind of snuck up on me. I, I think we're Facebook friends. And I noticed that you started posting things that people who were accused of child molestation said on the stand to defend themselves. Is that describing the project properly? Yeah, I've done a number of Facebook engagements. That was one of them. And I really enjoyed that because first, a pet project of mine is the rationalizations uh, that people make. For instance, that's why I love reading the memoirs of Nazis. I love hearing how they thought about what they were doing. And right. so to hear these um, these child molesters saying things like, well, she was my best friend. You know, they, they were saying th- unexpected things. They weren't saying she wanted it. You know, they were saying... No, kind of, no, it was like from, it was sincerity. It was the sincere. It was almost touching. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah. But I do think there's, right. there's, very, there's very much something to be gained by, by reading how these people see their actions. In a way, I mean, I, I would almost say it was kind of a more subtle project than the Gone with the Wind project. Oh, yeah. And there's, I mean, social media trades on its oppositions, right? Mm -hmm. Social media trades on sincerity and objectivity in the sense of it trades on the idea that I'm presenting some version of my true self, my true feelings, but also I'm an object. Mm -hmm. As in I'm an avatar, you mean? And Evan, I'm an avatar. Mm-hmm. And it trades on the... I read a really stupid New York Times article not that long ago that said, well, see, social media actually is a kind of democratic forum because people share things that they don't believe. In other words, if you're conservative, conservatives share like 50% of the time they share an article that has a liberal or progressive stance and vice versa. And mm. I thought, well, these people have no idea how social media works. <laughs> <laughs> because you share them so that everybody can get outraged. Yes. Right. That's why you share them. So what we love is we're in a bubble of affinity of my friends, my followers, mm-hmm. and then we share stuff from outside the bubble that we can all rally around in our hatred. And of course, we aren't always completely aware of our affinity bubbles. For Heriberto Yepes, a poet from Tijuana, who was also on the original program of the Berkeley Poetry Conference, and who we also asked to be on this program, we will have him on another time. He could not make it this week. The issue is a very local American one. From Yepes's perspective, the American desire to assign everyone a racial category and use that as their primary identification is one of the basic ways that American imperialism, American global power works. We define who is what race, and then we decide whether we can bomb them. And that descriptor, that kind of bureaucratic description is something that he feels needs to be resisted. He talks about this on his website. And a number of other people who declined to come on said privately that the issue, as they saw it, is obviously larger than conceptual poetry. It's obviously larger than poetry. Obviously, black lives matter, brown lives matter, all lives matter. For some, it's a larger issue than even race, uh, as it is for Yepes. Well, for others, Racism is the structure that needs to be demolished. But many of them despaired at literature's power to have any impact. Nonetheless, to a person, they all, as uh, all of our guests today do, Matthew Shinoda, Mary Nana Amadankwa, Vanessa Place, they all agree that finally the question has to be the question of how we achieve, if not justice, at least more justice. 
thanks to Vanessa Place, Marinana Amadankwa, and Matthew Shinoda. Thanks to our producer and moral center, Jerry Gorin, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, I'm Seth Greenland, and you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour on 90.7 KPFK-FM. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download the podcast at iTunes. Give us a rating if you feel like it. We like five stars. See you next week.